Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Hope you had a uh, good Independence Day and uh, welcome to church. We are going to be talking about what true freedom looks like this morning and praise God for our country. I am an American and I do love America. And uh, I, I am thankful, though, also that here in America, we can look to the only one that can provide true freedom. And, and that is Jesus Christ. So if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And you can live in the, quote, land of the free and be completely bound up in bondage. That is true. And often the greatest bondage that we have is bondage in our own heart. And so this morning we're going to talk a little bit about this. Um, and, and I also want to reiterate some of the stuff that Rich had said earlier to you. I want to invite you all to our summer nights uh, series. We're having it this Wednesday. will be our second time that we've gathered together. It is going to be fantastic, or, or actually third. Um, but uh, you can dive right in. We are going to be walking through this book, as he mentioned, called Essential Christianity by J.D. Greer. Um, and we're going to be having group discussions and food, and it's going to be good. If you are just diving in and you don't have the book, but you still want to come, please come. We're going to give a thorough recap, and you will be fully able to enter into the discussion and the community that we have here uh, even if you have not read the book. But if you would like to read the book, we probably uh, have some more for you and the next steps table in the back can provide that. Uh, again, QR code to sign up just so we get an idea. Um, and uh, all right, let's dive in. So this morning we are continuing through our summer series through the Sermon on the Mount. And we have come to Matthew chapter six, verse nine through 15, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And so last week, we looked at how Jesus encouraged us not to pray, but this morning, we're actually going to look at how he does teach us to pray, even as we pray together. And so as we walk through this prayer model, I want you to see how it starts with our vertical relationship with God, and then it overflows, it flows into our horizontal relationships with each other. That's a theme in the Sermon on the Mount. So just like the Beatitudes that we began with, right at the beginning of the sermon, he kicks it off. A few weeks ago, we looked at him starting the sermon right out of the gate. Jesus opens with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he starts addressing our vertical relationship first and foremost with him, with God. And then that flows into our horizontal relationships with each other. And it's a clear statement about the necessity of reconnecting with our only real source of life and love, even at a heart level. That's the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And how everything else in this world is the overflow of that reconnection, that redemption, that restoration. It's not an external show. It's about an internal transformation of the heart. And so that same vertical to horizontal framework that we see is used here in the model that he gives for us in prayer. So it's not just the Beatitudes that he starts with, it's actually thoroughly saturating the framework that he uses for the entire sermon. This is 103 verses, three chapters of one sermon. He sits down and he's speaking to them on the side of a mountain. And again, he starts with approaching God relationally. The way that he invites us to pray is essentially relationally. 
He says, come hallowed or holy. But not just hallowed and holy and distant. Like, don't, don't miss this. Don't just read over this. Because this is radical. He says, call him hallowed father. Say father. And not just earthly father. Father in heaven means he's different. He's a different kind of father. He's whatever kind of experiences you've had with earthly fathers, they're just a shadow and a fallen shadow of your heavenly father who's not fallen. He's perfect. And he's so good. And part of approaching the Lord this way is a redemption of all of our experiences in this fallen world. He's our hallowed Father. Hallowed be your name. Right? And, and then it ends with a very pointed command to forgive. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. To forgive others just as we've been forgiven by God, our Father. So Jesus connects our greatest struggle in our horizontal relationships directly to our vertical status with the creator of the universe. In other words, the heart of this prayer is about daily receiving God's grace and offering it to each other. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, if you check out and you're like, is that a dolphin? I don't know. Here's what I want you to get this morning. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. So some light, really light reading this morning. I love how people think that the Sermon on the Mount is like just about niceness. They've not read it. (laughs) Okay? Forgiven people forgive people. Again, Christianity isn't just about proclaiming the grace of God. It's about extending the grace of God even to those who have sinned against you. Easier said than done though, right? Way easier said than done. There's not a person in here who's not been affected by this. We live in a fallen world. In fact, it's probably, this is likely, if not definitely, the most difficult part of following Jesus. But when we do, we don't just follow him, we identify with him. We even agree with him that his grace is enough and his way is worth it. Because he is worth it. Now, again, this all sounds nice. Like, oh, forgiven people, they forgive you. This is a forgiving place. We kind of miss what it really means, the heart of what's happening here. It all sounds really nice until you've been really sinned against. Like it all sounds tidy, like some tidy church stuff, right? Like religious things until somebody really hurts you or betrays you. And that's when you find out what you really believe about grace. That's the challenge. It's a real litmus test here. Like as long as it's just God who's been sinned against, then we're pretty quick to point people to grace. But when we've been the ones who are personally wounded by the actions of another, 
instead of picking up our cross and following Jesus, we tend to pick up the gavel and lay down the cross. That gavel of judgment. Much easier to hold that than it is to hold the cross of Christ. But the gavel doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. The cross belongs to us. The gavel belongs to the judge, but the judge himself, and this is the power of it, the judge, God Almighty, himself picked up the cross. What, what the thing that belongs to us, he picked up. And he's called us to follow him and do likewise. Now, some of you may already be offended at the entire concept of forgiveness. You've already checked out. Because that's what, that's what bitterness does when it really gets you. You're like, oh, God, why did I even come? I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to think about this. Like maybe you even hear forgiveness and it just sounds like injustice to you. Like it may seem like cowardice even or weakness that just propagates oppression and wickedness by letting evil people off the hook and then it just becomes systemic. But if that's how you see forgiveness, then you haven't understood what biblical forgiveness actually is. And we're not going to let the world define what forgiveness is. We're going to let the Bible, God's Word, define what forgiveness is. So what is it? Like, what does it mean to forgive? Why is it so important to forgive? And how is it even possible? Like, these are the questions that we're going to attempt to tackle for the rest of our time together this morning. And we're going to do so by walking through this model of prayer that Jesus gives us. Because ultimately, the only way forgiveness is possible is when a miracle happens in our hearts. I mean, it requires a miracle. You can't muster this up on your own. It requires a miracle. And so if you've been hurt, if you've been offended, if you've been sinned against, if you've been wronged, if you've been the victim of injustice, you need a miracle. I need a miracle. Because true forgiveness, though, requires a miracle. But that doesn't mean that you have no responsibility to reach out for that miracle. <laughs> it just means it all requires His Spirit. And His Spirit and that miracle is available to us all in Christ, even this morning. Because Jesus, listen, He doesn't tell us to do anything that He doesn't provide the power for us to do in the first place. Again, this is all reliant upon Him. What we're doing and what I'm asking you to do in these circumstances is just take your hand off of the door and let Him in. And so this morning, I'm not just going to preach this, this uh, sermon. We're going to pray through it, okay? Because this isn't just the Lord's prayer. This is the prayer that the Lord gave to the church. And so as the church, I want to pray through it together. I want to pray it over you. I want to pray it over myself. I want to pray it with you. It's also, guys, not a coincidence that the model God gives us for prayer culminates in a command to forgive because, again, true forgiveness requires the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as, as we will see later in this series, when you ask, you will receive. When you seek, you will find. And when you knock, the door will be open to you. And so let's ask for the miracle of grace this morning. That's what we're going to ask for us, what I want to ask for us, what I've been praying over you and over my life in all ways, and even our society, the cancel culture. There's nothing more pertinent than the way that God has called us to pray for our society today. And so too often we ask for physical healing, right? Not too often. I don't think you can too often ask for physical healing. Like, keep pressing in. He is the God of miracles. Let's go. Amen? 
It's good. He answers. But too often we pray for physical healing and then ignore spiritual brokenness in our own hearts. In fact, in Matthew 9, Jesus makes it clear that the greater miracle, the greater need is the healing of our hearts through forgiveness. That's what he actually is. He even heals a man physically just to prove that he had authority to forgive sins, which is the greater miracle. So the physical healing was just a sign that pointed to the greater heart-level work of grace and forgiveness. And so as we're about to see, that miracle doesn't just apply to us, it also applies through us. So look with me now at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It says then this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So I just want to pray through this prayer together as a church, and then we're going to uh, talk a bit more about forgiveness, okay? So let's pray. Our Father, Heavenly Father, God, may your name be hallowed. Creator of the universe, remind us of how holy and powerful you are and don't let us forget how tender and close you desire to be to every single one of us in this room. Like we come to you this morning, even in, in the upper room, like your disciples gathered to pray in the upper room in Acts 2, and you met them there and you infiltrated this world with your spirit through them and your church was ignited as they came together, gathered together to pray. And so, Father, you put your spirit in them, and we ask that you would breathe your spirit into us in a fresh way, even this morning. God, remind us of our identity in you. Give us that identity that's available to us in Christ, if we don't have it already, that we would lean in and receive that identity as your children. And so just like my kids are called by my name, God, we are called by your holy name. So Lord, I ask that you'd help us to delight in your delight and receive that identity, that holy identity that you've declared over us in Christ this morning. So God, that's how we approach you this morning. Not as slaves, not as hirelings, but beloved children. So holy, heavenly Father, we receive our identity this morning. We receive that ring of inheritance and the best robe that you have, just like the one in the prodigal son story, God. Not, not because we deserve it, but because you, you're yours and you delight to give it. Anything that would keep us from receiving that, God, we rebuke it in Jesus' name and we ask for your grace even to receive your delight and your inheritance and your love. And so, God, we, we're here clothed even in your spirit with your fatherly love, even before your heavenly throne. God, we approach that throne with grace and we pray as you taught us in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, we confess things in this world aren't as they should be. We confess that we're spiritually needy and we're broken, that we need healing. We confess, we cry out that we need and long for more of your spirit and your presence and your power and your grace. And we ask that it would infiltrate our whole community, our city and beyond, and that it would start right with our own hearts. And so God, we confess that your ways are higher, that they are better. And without you, it's all just vanity. It's pointless. It's just selfish. But with you, God is glorious. God is heavenly. So, Lord, we, we, we cry out. 
We pray your kingdom come in our families, in our church, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our interactions with each other, and even in our politics. And that's a miracle. But we pray for it, Lord. And, and, And most importantly, though, we ask for it to move and to come as it is in heaven in our own hearts. Renew and restore and align our hearts with yours even here and now on earth as we live as sojourners in a land that's not our own, but we seek its welfare. So Father, we pray that your spirit would break out. Give us a hunger. And we confess we are hungry for more of you and your righteousness, Lord. And so, as verse 11 teaches us, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, provide all that we need for life and godliness. Provide in abundance all that we need for the calling that you set before us to work in the abundant life that you've invited us into and the commission that you've assigned for us. God, we pray that you bless us with abundant resources, the resources that we need today and every day to help us even walk in this. Lord, help us to feast and enjoy what you provide. God, thank you for all that you've provided for us already and help us, Lord, to enjoy it and give glory to you for it every day. And ultimately, God, we confess that our ultimate daily bread is Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. He is what nourishes us from the inside out. So God, thank you that we get to gather and to commune with you and each other because of Jesus. And so Lord, help us to not take it for granted, but instead to dig in. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you might have noticed that I stopped a little early. So before we go on to the last two verses that deal with forgiveness and even temptation, I want to talk a little bit about these next few verses before we pray them together, okay? Verse 12 says, after we're taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread, verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then... uh, You may have memorized the benediction, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Um, The King James Version puts that in there. It is good and godly and holy to recite and to say and pray, um, but it is not in the original manuscripts here, and it's likely taken from an Old Testament passage. And so it is biblical and good, so pray it. It's good. Uh, But that's just a side note why it's not in uh, certain translations like ESV or or NIV. But it goes right into verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What? Wait. Wait, what? What does that mean? Because that escalated, didn't it? So Jesus caps his model of prayer with a pretty severe warning about unforgiveness in our hearts. But verse 14 and 15 actually explains verse 12 and 13 in his prayer model. 
In other words, the reason we daily pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors is because unforgiveness is a path that leads to temptation, destruction, and evil. And so receiving forgiveness happens first in that vertical alignment. And then the result of that true vertical alignment with God is reflected horizontally in our relationships with each other. And so if there then is a breakdown in your vertical alignment, it's going to show up horizontally. In other words, verse 14 and 15 is not saying that you earn forgiveness by forgiving others. You don't earn God's forgiveness, this is important, by forgiving other people. Okay? It's saying that if you don't forgive others, it's an indication of how you actually perceive God's grace and whether you've received that in its fullness or not. Because forgiven people forgive people. Now, if that's a difficult pill to swallow, welcome to church. (laughs) You're not alone. In fact, I think it's important that it is difficult because if it's not difficult, then you don't understand what God's done for you. This is hard. It's not supposed to be easy. Okay? In fact, let's talk about it, right? Let's ask our questions. What does it mean to forgive? Why is it important to forgive? And how can we forgive? So first, what does it mean to forgive? Many of you know how grateful I am, and and many of you in this room are, as you should be, for Tim Keller, Dr. Tim Keller, um, who passed to be with Jesus two months ago now, just about, or just under. Um, But even as the man battled cancer, he wrote so many books that have really influenced me and many of you. But even as this man battled cancer, I'm going to get through this one. By God's grace, he churned out another book, one final book. And so knowing the context that he's being treated for cancer and he's literally facing death in the face, he writes this book, which makes it all the more powerful. And you know what the book was about? The title is Forgive. Why should I and how can I? From the time I picked this book up this week, I got it this week, and I picked it up and could not put it down. And and, and Keller is dense. If you've ever read anything from Tim Keller, it's not like easy reading. It's just like he's so dense, but it just sucked me in, and it was so good that I couldn't put it down until I was finished. Now, I know we're reading J.D. Greer's book, (laughs) Essential Christianity, and you should continue. It is very good, but I also want to encourage you, go ahead and put Keller's book in the lineup because it is so powerful. And like Greer's book, it's an extremely helpful and timely word for God's people today, right now. And so in his book, he gives a definition for forgiveness, and he says this. Forgiveness is to renounce revenge and be open to reconciliation. And he defined revenge itself as being satisfied by another person's unhappiness especially that inflicted by you. So, why is it important to forgive? For some, this may be a foregone conclusion already. Some of you are like, it's not. (laughs) It's not important. Like, maybe the first question should be, is it even important to forgive in the first place? 
Matthew 18. Jesus is actually asked a similar question. He's been, he's been laying out the framework for reconciliation. And then verse 21 of Matthew 18, it says this. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And the religious leaders of the day had actually established that three times was the minimum necessary. Like that was you, you, you three times. And after that, nah, nah. And so Peter's probably feeling pretty good. He's probably feeling pretty pious about his suggestion of seven times here. But then in verse 22, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In another gospel, it says 70 times a thousand or 70,000. I can't remember that. A lot, essentially, because this is the point. It's another way of saying there's no limit, which would have been shocking. And so he then explains with a parable. He says this, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven which is what Jesus came to usher in, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so in this parable, Jesus is the king and we are the servants. And then verse 24, he says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now that would have been the equivalent of around $6 billion in our current currency, right? So in today's terms, essentially this is an impossible number. It's an incalculable number. It's, it's a picture of the wages of sin before a holy God. You cannot pay it back. The debt incurred because of sin demands payment that results then in eternal bondage. You couldn't file for bankruptcy back in that day, right? What it meant was slavery or prison. That's what it meant. So verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. No, he wasn't. Good. No, he wasn't. He was not. He couldn't. He may have wanted to, but it's a silly and even prideful thought that he could pull it off. He was detached from his own desperate situation. His own destitution, he couldn't face. He's like, just have patience. I'll do it. I can do it. I can do it. I'm enough. I can. I promise. And he's like, nope. No, you're not. It's impossible. In fact, the attempt to is just in itself self-righteous pride. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He didn't just have patience with him. He didn't just show leniency to him. He didn't simply decrease the debt to a manageable number. He forgave the debt entirely. That's important because that's what God has done for us in Christ. It means he, the master, significant, suffered the amount owed himself. He had to pay it. He didn't just dismiss justice, he took it on himself. That's what that means. He took the consequence of the debt incurred upon himself. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which would be about $12,000 in today's terms. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Get the imagery here. 
was violent. Choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So it seems like the, the, the experience that this man has had only shamed him, igniting his pride and his fear of ever being in a position like that again. When he was standing before the master, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle that he couldn't pay it off. He didn't receive it as grace, but merely fear and shame. And so here, he's driven by his fear of failure to exact the same kind of payment from others that he was forgiven of. It's clear that this is all a symptom of a heart that hasn't actually been transformed by the offer of forgiveness. He's still just out for himself. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, the vertical relationship was to flow into the horizontal relationship. Verse 34, And in anger, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which we now know, again, was impossible because the debt was incalculable. So this is an eternal prison. And Jesus drives this parable home saying, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now many attribute this prison sentence to represent hell, which I do think that it does, but it does also in some ways um, represent the doors of that prison that are enclosed upon our hearts even now through bitterness and unforgiveness. Like it's a prison hallway into the jail cell of bitterness and resentment. Keller quoted the late Carrie Fisher, remember the Star Wars Leia, Leia lady? <laughs> um, and she said, she put it like this, she said, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. The reason we forgive, hear this, isn't just for self-cleansing. Like our ultimate motivation is vertical alignment with the heart of God. Like I've heard people say this a lot. I've heard people say things like, forgiveness isn't about the one that hurt you, it's about you. You ever heard that before? Forgiveness isn't about them, it's about you. And I get what they're saying, but honestly, that's, that's ridiculous. That's not true, guys. That's not true forgiveness. Like, hear this. Like, like I, I've heard people say this, but that's just avoidance. It's, it's just an attempt to detach from the memory of the pain of the injustice you've experienced. But deep down, bitterness is still going to hold fast to like, a, like roots of a weed that was just cut from the top. But if you don't pluck it out, if you don't get the roots out, then it's just going to spring up again. And it's going to choke out any real fruitfulness in your life. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it. See to it. That's intentional. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So the question is, how do we pluck up those weeds of bitterness and resentment at the root? How can we forgive? First of all, one of the ways that those bitter roots get to hide, what they hide in in many ways, 
is false forgiveness. Counterfeit forgiveness. The world's definition of what, a for, what it is to forgive, right? Like too often we listen to the way the world defines forgiveness rather than the way God defines it, and we then look for a reason or an excuse for people's behavior in order to dismiss it or excuse it. It's an attempt to forgive horizontally without first receiving forgiveness vertically and bring him into it. So it and, and that never really works, right? Like we'll say, well, you know, I, I know they hurt me. I know that they hurt me, but you know what? They've been hurt themselves. I, I know that I, I, I was abused, but you know what? They were abused. So I'm going to excuse their behavior because of what they experienced. Like we might even say, well, they're, they're dealing with mental illness, or they were afraid, or it's the system, or their family of origin, or all of these different things. And this is the thing. All of those things do come into play when it comes to sin, and it's helpful to gain understanding for the reason people do the things that they do. It is important for us even to understand and comprehend the reason for why we do what we do, but the reason we do that is so we can pluck it out at the root. But hear this, these are all reasons, not excuses. It's not an excuse for you, it's not an excuse for them. There is no excuse. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you have experienced very real injustice and you think that the righteous answer is to simply find a good reason to excuse the injustice done to you and just forget about it, get over it, let it go. And for some reason, you can't. And so listen to me. The reason you can't is because that's not forgiveness. All that's going to do is preach a false gospel to your heart that God doesn't really care about you and he doesn't really care about justice. But he does care about you. And he cares about the person next to you. And he loves you and he loves you ferociously. In fact, his wrath is the result of his love. He doesn't simply dismiss injustice and sin. His goodness and his justice demand that the debt be paid, that restitution is made. Because his love is fierce. Exodus 20 and 34 make it clear that he is a jealous protector. You need to get that. You need to know that your creator, your heavenly father, is your jealous protector. Like he's the ultimate daddy with a shotgun. Right? So if you've experienced injustice or abuse, you need to know that nobody is more upset about it than God is. Like so many times we raise a fist at him instead of realizing he's burning hot against the one who hurt you. Part of true forgiveness means coming to grips with the truth about the wrong that you've suffered, not just dismissing it as meaningless. Because by doing so, you accept the lie that God has dismissed you as worthless. Keller quotes C.S. Lewis in an essay called On Forgiveness, and he says this. C.S. Lewis, 
But there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us two will be exactly what it was before. But excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. We live in a world that doesn't believe it's really to blame. This is the root of so many issues. See, God doesn't simply excuse our sin. He's too good and too just for that. He doesn't just let sin go unpunished. Vengeance does, in fact, belong to Him. It doesn't belong to you, but it does belong to Him. He's the judge and He will repay. You see, true forgiveness requires that restitution has been made. And ultimately, we know that all sin is ultimately against God. And all of us have sinned and deserve the just penalty of His wrath. This is why true forgiveness can only flow through and from the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that God became a man in Jesus Christ and he lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die. He paid the debt that we owed and he was the only one with enough glory to cover it. Even the smallest sin Even the smallest sin in our eyes is a coup against the holy God that declares, I know better than you. That's what we do when we sin. It says, I'm better than, I'm a better God than you. I belong on the throne rather than you. It's a coup on his glory. It's a coup d'etat on God's glory and it incurs an incalculable debt that none of us could ever repay. Because you don't have enough glory to pay back any glory you've tried to take from him. But there is one who does have enough glory to pay for what we tried to steal. It's Jesus. The Son of God in the flesh, the God-man, he has enough glory to cover all of our sin. Which is why to say that you have sinned more than the death of Jesus can cover is insane. And so in his compassion and his mercy, he in fact did cover it upon the cross. And so through the resurrection, he paved the way to eternal life with God, the Father. And it begins now, not just one day when we die, but the moment we place our hope and our faith in what he did for us at the cross through the resurrection, and he fills us from the inside out with his love and grace and his spirit and renews us from the inside out. He draws our affections and aligns our hearts with his heart. And that's when we receive his forgiveness by grace through faith, not by our own works, but by the work that he did for us on the cross. He doesn't excuse our sin. He pays for it. And it was expensive. But for those who truly receive it, when we stand before the throne of God, maskless, exposed, utterly seen in all our fragility, failure, and vulnerability, for those who hope in Christ and God Almighty, the judge of eternity, will look you in the eyes and declare not guilty. And he would be unjust to do anything else. This is the hope that we have in Christ. This is the gospel of grace. The question is, have you received it? Have you received him in its fullness? Or like the man in in Christ's parable, are you simply ashamed that you're not able to repay the debt yourself? Because if so, then you will act 
accordingly and treat others as if they have to pay you back for the sin that you have caused or for the sin that they've done against you. So Jesus says the best way to gauge how you received God's grace is in your willingness to agree with his grace in the lives of those who have sinned against you. Because forgiven people forgive people. But that's much easier said than done, right? Again, like I'm under no delusions and neither should you be that offering forgiveness is easy. Like in so many ways, again, the difficulty of forgiving offense gives us insight into what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's not supposed to be easy. Now, yes, you can overlook slights and you can overlook things and not get caught up in it. But when you're really hurt, like don't mistake difficulty to forgive as a sign that you're not saved. Did you hear this? This is very important. Don't mistake difficulty to forgive as a sign that you're not saved. In so many ways, you're understanding the depths of God's grace even more when it's hard. Because you see what Jesus did for you. This is why it's all about the vertical and it's expressed through the horizontal. And then it draws us up into who he is and what he's done for us. And it changes things in us and in our world. But your outright refusal to forgive, that's likely a symptom. Again, our horizontal relationships with each other flow directly out of our vertical relationship with him. Lewis continues in his essay and he says, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, how can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Keller recounts the story of Corey Ten Boom. Here we go. Y'all pray for me on this one. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch woman whose family hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. She and her sister Betsy were caught and put in a concentration camp where her sister died. A couple of years after the war ended, she was speaking at a conference in Germany and, and she's proclaiming the grace of God to the people there. She's talking about who God is and, 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 and she's saying, through Jesus Christ, God has thrown our sins into the bottom of the sea. Amen? That's good. That's powerful, right? Then after she's finished, there's a man who was in the audience and he approaches her. And while he didn't recognize her, she recognized him. And she writes this. This was 1947. It says, this man had been a guard at Ravensbrook concentration camp where we were sent. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. I remembered the leather crop swinging from his belt. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. He didn't recognize her. He didn't know who she was. 
He was just looking for confirmation that even he could be forgiven. But Corey, it says, she says, she kept her hand in her pocket instead of reaching out to shake his. The man confessed that he'd been a guard at Ravensbrook and he sought forgiveness from Christ. He says for all the cruel things that he did there at that concentration camp, she does, he still didn't know that she was a recipient. But still, Corey Ten Boom writes, I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? But she knew she had to do it. She'd seen too many who, even after the war, had through their, as she puts it, bitterness remained invalids, even after the war ended. And she also understood, as she writes, and this is important, that forgiveness is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. I'm going to say that again. She understood that forgiveness, as she says, is not an emotion. It is an act of the will. And so standing before that Nazi guard, she silently prayed, Jesus, help me. And she says, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And so Corey recounts, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Woo! Now your story may not be as intense as Corey Ten Boom's. I actually pray and hope that it is not. But we live in a world of cancel culture. We live in a world, as Keller puts it, where canceling, ghosting, and insults are the norm. He says, you will experience snubs on a regular basis and in some cases will experience real injustice. He continues saying, and yes, I'm going to quote him a lot. So deal with it. He says, we are awash in slights, letdowns, and inadvertent hurts, let alone the many deliberate ways people wrong us in small ways every day. No one can live unless he or she learns when to forgive silently, when to bring up the matter, and how to forgive even if the other person is reluctant to admit his or her fault. We can't love without forgiveness, but we can't live without it either. But still, forgiveness can sometimes be very elusive to us, right? Especially if you don't feel like you've forgiven someone. Right? But as Corey Ten Boom tells us, it's not an emotion. It's an act of the will. That's where it begins. It's about aligning with the heart of God and agreeing with His offer of forgiveness. Now, it's important to note here that there, there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I want to call attention to this because this is maybe there's a lot of confusion surrounding this, and I think part of the reason why people are not willing to do this is because they think that that is the same as reconciliation and not necessarily true. 
We're called to offer forgiveness. We're commanded by Jesus to offer forgiveness because God has offered forgiveness to all in Jesus Christ. But only some will repent and receive his offer of grace, which brings them into reconciliation with the Father. Not everyone that he has offered forgiveness to will receive his forgiveness and be reconciled. So only those who repent and truly receive his grace will be reconciled to him. And that is also how it works with us horizontally as well as Christians. Again, we are commanded to offer the forgiveness in Christ, but reconciliation is only warranted if repentance takes place. So wisdom is needed. You've got it. This is not as cut and dry as we often want it to be. Like you can offer forgiveness from your heart to an abusive person, but unless they repent and are reconciled and transformed by the grace of God, it may be unwise to reconcile. We're called to exercise wisdom, especially with toxic people. Like you can forgive dangerous people for the hurt that they've caused you and those around you without giving them free reign to continue. Sometimes God removes unhealthy relationships. Part of forgiveness is even trusting him in that process. Offering real forgiveness and moving forward in that process. But, but real heart-level forgiveness is still necessary in all circumstances. Forgiving from the heart, just as you've been forgiven. And so, Dr. Keller lays out four aspects of forgiveness. Number one, he says, name the wrong truthfully as indeed wrong and punishable. Not dismissing, not excusing. Number two, identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner. Not excusing them, but not demonizing them either. That only fuels pride and it justifies resentment. Okay? Number three, release the wrongdoer from liability from personal payback by absorbing the debt yourself. <laughs> yeah, this is the hard one. This is part of the sacrifice that comes with all forgiveness. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for all sin, but when we forgive in some manner, we also pay or even suffer. Again, this doesn't mean that they will not face earthly consequences, right? Or, or, or even eternal consequences for their actions, but that's up to either the earthly judge or the eternal judge. The point, though, still, in all of these circumstances, is personal forgiveness, which allows you to release them to the one who ultimately judges justly, and that is not you. If forgiveness means giving up the right to revenge, the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you, then, as Keller puts it, it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. When you forgive, come to grips with the reality that it's not going to be easy. If forgiveness means giving up the right to revenge, the right to seek repayment from one who harmed you, then it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. He writes this, when you are sinned against, you lose something, whether it's happiness, reputation, peace of mind, a relationship, an opportunity, or something else. There are two things to do about a sin. Imagine, for example, that someone has hurt your reputation. You can try to restore it by paying the other person back, by vilifying them and ruining their reputation. Or you can forgive them, refuse to pay them back, and therefore absorb the damage to your reputation. You will have to restore it over time. 
But in all situations, when wrong is done, there is always a debt. And there's no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. Either you make the debtor pay by hurting them until you feel things are even, or you pay by forgiving and absorbing the pain within yourself. Forgiveness is always costly. It is emotionally very expensive. It takes much blood, sweat, and tears. So in forgiveness, you pay the debt yourself in several ways. And he gives first, by refusing to hurt the person directly. You refuse vengeance, payback, or the infliction of pain in order to try to relieve the sense of debt that you feel. Instead, you're as cordial as possible. And he says, beware of subtle ways that we can try to exact payment in our relationship. Second, by refusing to cut the person down to others. And then third, by refusing to indulge in ill will in your heart. He talks about running a videotape of what happened over and over and over and over and over again because you feel like you are the noble one who has been the victim. And he continues saying, forgiveness then is granted before it's felt. Forgiveness then is granted before it's felt. It's a promise to refrain from the three things above and pray for the perpetrator as you remind yourself of God's grace to you. Though it's extremely difficult and painful, you are bearing the cost of the sin yourself. Forgiveness will deepen your character, free you to talk to and help the person and lead to love and peace rather than bitterness. And by bearing the cost of the sin, you are walking in the path of your master, who's ultimately the one who's paid it all anyways. I added that part. Colossians 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I just, more Keller, can't help it. It's just too good. I think this is the last one, maybe. <laughs> he says it's typical for non-Christians today to say that the cross makes no sense. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? But no one who has been deeply wronged just forgives if someone wrongs you, there are only two options. You make them suffer or you refuse revenge and forgive them and then you suffer. And if we can't forgive without suffering, how much more must God suffer in order to forgive us? For if we sense the obligation and debt and injustice of sin unavoidably in our soul, how much more does God know it? On the cross, we see God forgiving us and that is possible only if God suffers. On the cross, God's love satisfied his own justice by suffering, bearing the penalty for sin. There is never forgiveness without suffering, nails, thorns, sweat, blood. Never. And then the fourth and final aspect of forgiveness that he identifies here is to aim for reconciliation and the restoration of the relationship that was broken by the wrong. But this is only possible once forgiveness has taken place in your heart. Remember, reconciliation requires the willingness of the other party, which may not be possible. But if you're not willing to aim for reconciliation, then you're likely not agreeing with God's offer of forgiveness in the first place. 
Whether they're willing or repentant or not, that does not determine your responsibility to forgive or ability to forgive if the Spirit of God is in you. We've been given the ability to respond by God's grace and therefore the responsibility to do so. Praise God. Deciding to agree with Christ's offer of forgiveness can happen in an instant. You hear a lot of times that forgiveness is a process. I want to put towards you that it can happen the moment you decide to agree with what Jesus has declared. His offer of forgiveness happens when we agree with him. That can happen in a minute, a moment. I can lift my hand, says Corey Tindum. It's a matter of the will, but walking in that forgiveness, not only proclaiming it, but demonstrating it, paying it down, paying down the debt, as Keller puts it, even when you don't feel it, that is often a process. But forgiving and praying for those who have hurt you, walking in grace, that's a lifelong process, and it's called sanctification, and it takes the Holy Spirit doing a miraculous work in us. But it begins with the grace of God for you and working in through you. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. That then overflows into as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 12 through 13 are only possible when we're secure in verse 9 through 11. Like when you receive your identity as children of the Holy Father in heaven, citizens of the kingdom of heaven who hunger for heaven to come and break out on the earth, and, and, and yet you're living satisfied in the daily abundant bread and provision of God and Christ. When all of that happens, which is verse 9 through 11, then, and most of all, when you receive forgiveness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, only then are we able to authentically forgive our debtors or those who have sinned against us or trespassed against us or wronged us or hurt us or offended us. Like that is only possible when you have Christ, when he's all you need, when he's your father. Like maybe this morning you feel trapped in a prison of bitterness. Maybe unforgiveness has gripped your heart so tightly that you feel captivated by it or held captive by it. So this morning, I want to encourage you to ask God to do a miracle in you. The miracle of forgiveness. It may be as simple as lifting your hand to the Lord, saying, I forgive him or her or even a group of people. It may, it may be you saying, I agree with your offer of grace for them and pray that they even receive it. Not just so you can be free from bitterness, because it's the Father's heart for all of us. Because forgiven people forgive people. Will you pray with me? Let's pray.